Coming up on the Inside Indiana Business Television podcast, from real estate moguls to unlikely NBA owners, Herb Simon and his late brother Mel are credited with keeping the Indiana Pacers in Indianapolis. And now the plan is to keep team ownership all in the family. We'll have a rare one-on-one interview with the future owner of the Indiana Pacers, Steve Simon, plus a renaissance of sorts in Park County, how two entrepreneurs are transforming tourism in the covered bridge capital of the world, and how a relaxing vacay in the Dominican Republic turned out to be the jumping off point for one Southern Indiana couple in search of the perfect poolside cocktail. The story behind the no-bubble, sugar-free, carb-free vodka drink that's selling out in stores across the U.S. And we talk about the week's biggest stories with our partners at the IBJ. Welcome to the Inside Indiana Business Television Podcast. I'm Alex Brown. For fans of the Indiana Pacers who've been clamoring for change, you're getting your wish. From big roster moves to a $360 million facelift, both inside and outside of Gainbridge Fieldhouse, the franchise is getting a new look both on and off the court. The man in line to be the next owner of the franchise has quietly been working behind the scenes on a blueprint for the future. And this week, Steve Simon joins Gary Dick to talk about the type of owner he will be. Pacer fans are going to want to know know what 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 kind of an owner is Steve Simon going to be how, how would you describe your your style your the thought process what what would you what would you say to those uh, inquiring uh, pacer fans who are wondering uh, about uh, your your ownership style I mean I'm you know it's the same ownership style I've you know I think I've been employing like how do I you know how do I be myself right how do I um continue to learn and grow, always have smarter people around me. You know, how do I listen better? I'm always working on how do I listen better? You know, bring more compassion to various roles. I get to, you know, I get to do a lot of different things, you know, beyond Pacer Sports Entertainment and uh, it's it's fortunate. So how do I bring my authentic self? And I think, you know, as, as a boss or an owner or someone who's leading people, like how do I show my own frailties, admit my mistakes, and, you know, want to, I think, continue to radically learn and get better. And I think that gives people, you know, around you the ability to admit their frailties, get to know themselves better, ultimately be more connected to themselves and other other folks and, and be better, more effective leaders and and, you know, contributing to an organization. So I think it's, you know, this is, you know, touchy feely stuff, but this is sort of the way I think about it um, yeah. as an owner. As- yeah, I read a quote uh, in an article uh, from NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, who said in many ways, and he had many nice things to say about you, but um, he said in, in, in many ways or some ways, I, I think that Steve will be Herb Simon 2.0 from an ownership standpoint. Agree with that? Disagree? What's your, what's your take on Take what Herb's done, the way he treats people, the way he's compassionate and, and, and allows folks to operate without micromanagement. Certainly a lot of those things are very similar to um, our styles, which um, have a lot of similarity. There's some, there's some differences, but if I can take the, you know, the bedrock of my dad, which he's always wants to be the best partner uh, as, as stewards of, you know, of Gamebridge Fieldhouse, you know, in the history of that, of that building being a community asset, you know, how can we get back in the community? You know, there's certainly, you know, um, tax generation, economic contribution, you know, that'll be, you know, excited about amplifying even more, um, you know, as, as the building, um, you know, continues to get renovated and modernized, which we're excited about, but still keeping the guts of 
we think is the best basketball arena. We, you know, fortunate to get to host um, All-Star in 24 and have that be a, another, bring the world to Indianapolis, also economic contribution. But the idea of like Indianapolis does so well with their amenities and all the great stewards of the city, but to bring the world there, you know, and showcase this intimate, beautiful, multifaceted city, you know, it is part of the, you know, the fabric that I think makes it, you know, rich and, and additive to the, to the city and the state and, and, you know, the people it gets to touch that, you know, the organization, you know, how do we build more belongingness and culture and, um, and service to the community. For some perspective, we turn to Inside Indiana sports contributor, Bill Benner. Bill, uh, you have worked for the Pacers. You, you know Steve and, and the Simon family. For those who don't know, because a lot of people just don't know about Steve Simon, what kind of a leader ultimately one day will he be for the he, he's a He's a very astute um, young, uh, young man, younger man, than, yeah. uh, and, and quite... Uh, he doesn't want to know just your goals. He wants to know how you're going to get there. He's very strategic. He's a critical thinker. And, uh, but most of all, Gary, he cares deeply, deeply mm-hmm. about the Indiana Pacers and most, of, of course, about his, his yeah. father's legacy. I was going to ask you quickly, too, because that struck me. You know, he's out in California, has been for a couple of decades, but very connected, very knowledgeable, and really cares about Indianapolis and Indiana. That really came through in the interview. Well, yeah, and he, I mean, he's a, he's an Indiana guy. He's right. an Indianapolis uh, guy, yeah. and, and he does care deeply about the city. And I think he, I think he will be forward thinking. I think he knows enough to know, to know what he doesn't know, meaning he will yeah. continue to, like Herb has done, to let the basketball guys do the basketball, yeah. and Steve will see the, the bigger picture. Bill Benner, great perspective as always. Thanks. Thanks, Gary. It's time for Eye on Education. Noble County will soon be home to a cutting-edge lab, the first of its kind in Northeast Indiana, one of the first in the state. The new Industry 4.0 lab will be at the Community Learning Center in Kendallville. With more on how the lab is designed, how it came together, and how it'll give learners of all ages an understanding of technology, Gary Gatman, Executive Director of B. Noble, Inc., joins us from just outside the Community Center. I think this is an interesting and impactful story on multiple levels. One, kind of tee this up, if you would, Gary. Indiana's a manufacturing state, but Noble County in particular is very, very heavy, very intensive in the manufacturing sector. Yes, the the state's got a lot of manufacturing. The Northeast Indiana as a region has a lot, but we're one of the top concentrations of manufacturing in the state with 122 manufacturers that employ 10,000 of our workers. Uh, pay uh, higher than, than average wages, and they, they're investing many millions of dollars every year in new technologies to ensure that they continue to grow and thrive. And that's what prompted this, this new uh, learning uh, lab, really. Uh, you found out that there's a real concern of a shortage of, of employees or potential employees in that advanced manufacturing, that, that Industry 4.0, uh, those talents were really lacking in the region. Yeah, we, I mean, it, Talent was, was, was in short supply really across the board, but it was really highly uh, critical shortage in the area of advanced technologies, automation, uh, industrial robotics and programming, uh, digital cloud-based applications involved in the manufacturing process. So we begin to see a lot of things on the, on the factory floor, smart factory applications, and we did not have a, a system up here to develop the talent that these manufacturers would need in order to, to ensure success. Okay, talk about what both adults and traditional students who will go through this center, what they are learning, the types of uh, technology that is showcased there, because it really is that that leading edge, that cutting edge technology they'll be exposed to. 
It, it absolutely is. So we will offer a, uh, through our CTE program up here, Impact Institute, a two-year program for high school juniors and seniors. They will come here half of every school day, and they will learn for two years a variety of applications, everything from, from sensors and uh, um, additive manufacturing, which is 3D printing of parts. They're going to learn a significant amount of, of cloud-based communication systems where fork trucks are talking to drones and the drones are talking to computers that are talking to people and managing that whole system of communication and product flow. They're gonna learn all of that. Adults will also be able to take what we call micro classes where if they just need a class in one particular technology, they'll be able to arrange and, and use our lab for that. So it's gonna be available to young students and existing workers and adult learners as well. Only have about 30 seconds, Gary. A lot of regions talk about the need to do something like this. Not many pull it off. How did you make it happen? I know it was a real collaboration among uh, B Noble and a number of groups in the community. That great partners, uh, a great city that welcomed us in, in Kinderville, great foundations up here, Don Wood Foundation, Deco Foundation, training providers, high school systems. I didn't honestly, I didn't find anybody that didn't think this was something we should do. So we ended up with a, a long list of partners uh, all working for the same goal. And in about a year, we've been able to pull it off. Gary Gatman's the executive director at B Noble Inc., a new uh, 4.0 learning lab becoming reality in Kendallville in Noble County. Gary, congratulations uh, on the move, and we look forward to following your uh, success going forward. We welcome you anytime. Here's what's making news now around Indiana. West Central Indiana has received a major boost to the tune of $20 million in an effort to support the region's quality of life and talent attraction efforts. The Indiana Economic Development Corporation, in conjunction with the Wabash River Regional Development Authority, awarded $20 million to 24 projects spanning Clay, Knox, Park, Sullivan, Vermilion, and Vigo counties. It's all part of the IEDC's READY grant program. Around Indiana reporter Mary Rachel Redman has more on how one county is using its ready dollars to revive a tourist attraction that has fallen on hard times. One of the ready grant recipients on that list of 24 you mentioned is Billy Creek in Park County. Well, when I started doing a little research for the story, I discovered a renaissance of sorts happening in Park County. Thanks in large part to a pair of entrepreneurs that are quite literally reviving tourism in the area one property at a time, not only attracting visitors from neighboring states, but around the country, and in some cases, even around the world. For decades, people from all over would travel to the historic 1800s village, affectionately referred to as Billy Creek. Created in the 1960s by residents of Park County, Billy Creek Village was famous for its authentic historic buildings. From an 1830s log cabin to a turn-of-the-century schoolhouse, print shop, and in all over 30 unique historic structures, including three covered bridges. But time has not been kind to the beloved 70-acre property that narrowly escaped demolition in 2005 and has more or less sat idle for decades. Unfortunately, it just didn't get the love and care that it needed to sustain itself, um, you know, structurally. That is until about eight weeks ago when these two native Illinoisans stepped in. We've been very refreshed um, with Greg Larson and friends, as I will call them, um, that have come in and had that love of history, that love of restoration. 
and had the vision of what it could be. I mean, it's been a blessing. Park County residents really should be grateful for Larson and his business partner, Steve Chakeen. In less than a year's time, the pair has turned the once abandoned 200-plus-acre Indiana State Sanatorium into, well... Into probably one of the premier paranormal destinations in the country. We are kind of like... uh, ghost airbnb now they've got their sights set on billy creek it is the patrimony of park county both greg larson and steve chakeen tell me for them ultimately it's all about bringing the storied billy creek village back to its former glory we want to do the school days again where we invite schools to come and do field trips here Um, We're looking for volunteers to come and do some of the living history roles that they played in the past. We don't want to fundamentally change. We like Billy Creek as it is. I mean, but we want to do it in trust for the future generations who are going to use it. And the new management has plenty of plans for the site. Civil War reenactments that were popular in the late 70s and early 80s. And Larson and Shaquin tell me medieval reenactments are also on the table. We're also looking to bring some new events to the county. We do some uh, medieval sword fighting reenactment events, um, possibly some music uh, concerts, outdoor music festivals. But just anything tourism-based, we're looking to bring people from two, three, four hours away here to enjoy Park County. We have a lot of ideas for things we wish to do out here and just to make Billy Creek thrive again. While I was on my visit, the guys did give me a tour of the Indiana Sanatorium, and I will tell you, I've never seen anything like it. Equal parts creepy, fascinating, and oddly beautiful. There was even a team of ghost hunters there getting ready to spend two nights on the property with ghost pros and the whole nine yards. It was crazy. I'll have an in-depth look at the Indiana State Sanatorium in the coming weeks. Definitely one you don't want to miss. Well, now to Morgan County, where the I-69 project is nearing its end in Martinsville. And while it's caused more than a few headaches for travelers and residents, Mayor Kenny Costin says there's been a silver lining. It was kind of a double-edged sword. Um, there were a lot of people that made it through our downtown area that had never been in our downtown before. And some of the, the uh, store owners said, you know, the people would come in. So, well, you know, I was really aggravated to have to take the detour, but I wouldn't have found your shop had I not had to come through the downtown. This project is going to benefit Martinsville so much. We've got housing developments coming in. We've kind of adopted a, a, a motto at home in the valley, Martinsville. We want to attract first time home buyers professionals that are maybe the husband's working in Indianapolis, wife's in Bloomington. We've got a lot of things going on downtown to attract young families to come to Martinsville. And that's what we're going to try to focus on. Remember, you can catch Inside Indiana Business Television on stations throughout the state every weekend. Head to InsideIndianaBusiness.com to check listings. A vacation in the Dominican Republic forever changed the lives of a husband and wife from the Du Bois County town of Ferdinand. Jill and Bryce Morrison left their lifelong careers in healthcare to bring Jill's new favorite drink to life. They joined Gary Dick to share more on how Mom Water was born and now selling in a dozen states across the U.S. Well, as I mentioned, this started on vacation. Uh, so this wasn't a, a, a lifelong dream. This just kind of happened in the Dominican Republic. So, Jill, how, how, how did it all uh, come to be? Well, I was spent a couple of days drinking the sweetie sugary drinks. Was kind of tired of that. Mm-hmm. Found one of those big jars of the fruit infused water sitting on the bar. Took yeah. a big old cup full of that up to the bar and said, "Can you just put some 
liquor in yeah. this. Turned to him and said, this is so refreshing. I love this. I just want to keep drinking this. So came back to the States. Of course, switched to seltzers, beer, couldn't yeah. find anything like what I was making. So, and I started making my own at home, yeah. was making it and putting it in water bottles and just making my own concoctions, experimenting with flavors and. Yeah, and so it took off from there. Uh, so Bryce, talk about next steps and how you've created this business because it is really gaining traction in a big way. Yeah, luckily Jill's super persistent because uh, she's the original one that said we should do this because yeah. it seems to address a big need in the industry um, where there's no carbonation, no sweetener, low calorie, mm -hmm. and um, kind of laughed it off. And eventually her persistence paid off. And uh, I said, well, of the two of us, you know, my schedule was a little more flexible and um, I networked a lot and I knew a lot of people. I said, let me just see what I can figure out yeah. uh, with really not big intentions. Our intentions were to hopefully get it on local shelves and we could drink it and enjoy it. Um, and just one thing led to another. Uh, I joke a lot that kind of my ignorance to this whole process is probably what got us through yeah. um, because I never quite knew it was around the next corner. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, so give us a quick uh, synopsis on the flavors. You got, what, four flavors now? Mm -hmm. Passion fruit. That was the original one that started the whole uh -huh. um, journey. Uh, peach blueberry, lemon blueberry, and coconut mango. Yeah. And this is in the, what space is this in the in the drink what category in the drink space? So officially we're ready to drink. Um, a lot of the industry doesn't yet know what to do with us. Uh, so sometimes we're lumped in with seltzers. Sometimes we're lumped in with the ready to drink cocktails. We kind of fall somewhere in between. Yeah. Okay. Talk about the success because you are growing a dozen states with more on the way. Talk about how production and the interest you're having calls come to you from around the country. Yeah, from all over. Um, we were kind of at a crossroads at the end of summer with how popular it got. We decided to take the jump and go all in. Um, and, and once we started doing that, it was a scramble to say, listen, we want to try to be first to market with this product. And so we got a national contract uh, with our distributor. Uh, and then from there, other distributors were contacting us from other states. And we've just started to roll out um, across the U.S. really with yeah. uh, with states. Uh, coverage. We've had a lot of big chains that have come on board and, and the growth has just been kind of explosive. Where, where do you see us going? Growth opportunities. You see you have big, big growth plans. We do. We think there's a lot of different verticals we could get into, but we have a lot of really cool things in store for Mom Water. Um, our first goal is we want to be in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. um, we've even, uh, you know, international is on the radar now in, in the next few years. Um, but by the end of this year, 20 states or a little bit more. Um, 2023, by the end of that year, 40 states yeah. and so on. Exciting. Mom Water uh, indeed taking off uh, all out of the vacation several years ago. Jill and Bryce Morris and the co-founders, thank you both very much. We'll follow your progress. Thank you. Absolutely. Right. Thank you for having us. The IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center is celebrating 30 years of working to eliminate cancer's burden in Indiana. To mark the ongoing race to save lives, the center recently signed on as the primary sponsor of a formula car. Business of Health reporter Kylie Valletta has more. Because racing has special meaning to Hoosiers, the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center says it's a fitting way to celebrate three decades worth of accomplishments in fighting cancer. One major event came in 2019 when the center was named a Comprehensive Cancer Center, the highest designation from the National Cancer Institute. And joining me now to tell us more about the center's 30th anniversary is the center's director, Dr. Kelvin Lee. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Kyle. Glad to be here. Let's start with happy anniversary. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 30 Thank years is a big milestone. Yes. So uh, t take a look back with us quickly. Just give us a quick overview about the legacy of the IU Simon Cancer Center here. 
So cancer research at, uh, at, at IU has been fantastic for a long time. In, in 1992, Dr. Steve Williams said, well, what we really want to do is now go to the next level. And Steve started the, our trek towards the NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center. So we have gone from just a dream involving maybe four people to now an exceptional cancer center that has over 270 investigators, over $20 million in research. So it has really been a fabulous journey from really nothing uh, other than remarkably talented cancer folks uh, at IU to now the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center. It really is incredible. And I know that it's not your own accomplishment, but a lot of people think about the testicular cancer mm -hmm. and uh, how it was cured here in Indiana. Right. right. I think that the remarkable thing is that the very first cancer that was a solid tumor was actually cured by Dr. Larry Einhorn. And that, in fact, everybody in the cancer world says, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they find Larry to be a remarkable person, and he paved the way for everybody else to say, hey, we can in fact cure a cancer with chemotherapy. We can save the lives of young men who would have otherwise passed away. So that has been a remarkable milestone. The ability of the IU Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center really to go global. Uh, they, have, they have been working in Kenya for the last 25 years. They've really transformed cancer care overseas. It has really served as a model not for only for global oncology, but how do you take care of people in areas of America that don't really have access to you know, university hospitals? How do you deploy cutting edge medicine out in those areas. Right, so not just here in Indiana, but beyond. Exactly. Let's talk about this race car sponsorship. Uh, such a neat little partnership, yes. two homegrown Indiana things. Tell us, why did the IU Comprehensive Cancer Center want to sponsor a race car? Well, racing is so much part of the fabric. Uh, in Indianapolis, racing is so much a part of the fabric in Indiana. So that was one, one component. And, you know, we believe that research accelerates so the idea of accelerating what we were doing in in a race car was a component of what we were you know what we really wanted to, to pass along to everybody and racing is just like it's very much like science uh, or doing research you have to be determined there's a tremendous amount of precision and there's a tremendous amount of science which I learned at my first <laughs> Indy 500 this last uh, this last month so tremendous amount of science involved and we also had the opportunity to, to sponsor a young man, Jackson Lee, uh, who is now a sophomore at IUPUI uh, and really is one of the brightest young men that I've had have the chance to work with. So it is also, a, I think, part of our investment in youth because we believe that training the next generation for our scientists is really what we're going to, you know, where are we going to have a really big difference in, you know, making sure that that pipeline of really talented people continue to work in science and continue to move the field forward. We're finding those discoveries for tomorrow. Exactly. Uh, let's take a look at it through a business lens. How does the IU Simon Cancer Center plug into the business landscape here in Indianapolis and, and beyond? 
So IU, Simon, really is a hub of innovation uh, and really, I think, is one of the areas where if you're going to grow biotech through small companies, spin-offs, innovative technology, then the Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center really is a hub for that. And we have the opportunity, and we are, in fact, working with Purdue University to really tap into their biomedical engineering and their engineering expertise for things like, well, how do you, if you have somebody that is uh, out in rural Indiana and you want to monitor them, the thing to do is to develop wearable technology that can actually monitor their health and where they are, and those things are all coming out through our collaboration with uh, with our engineering friends, both at IU, the, at IU Bloomington, as well as at Purdue. Such a great team up. Well, it's fun to look back at where you've been. It's exciting to look forward about the things you're working on. So thanks for being on the show today, and happy anniversary. Again. Thank you very much. Steve Simon, who you heard from earlier in the podcast, is this week's guest on our Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. Subscribe for free from your favorite podcast provider. West Lafayette-based Innative is dealing with a shareholder lawsuit that has been filed in federal court after a report of mistreated animals at testing facilities. Plus, Ascension St. Vincent rolled out its neighborhood hospital concept five years ago. Three never opened, and now several are closing. We get more on what's making the headlines from the IBJ's editor, Leslie Weidenbenner. I mentioned Innative, uh, West Lafayette-based uh, company facing a lawsuit. They've had a plummeting stock price. Uh, watch the scoop on Innative. So last year, they, the company bought an, actually an Indianapolis-based company that does animal testing, and they did not, the shareholders claim, they did not disclose that there were some animal welfare concerns there that came out later. And now shareholders say that's one of the reasons that the stock price dropped, and they'd like some relief from the fact that they lost money in that deal. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, kind of that healthcare life sciences uh, theme, um, Ascension uh, came out with the concept, these tiny hospitals several years ago, uh, kind of a checkered report card, if you will, and, and some closings that I know uh, you're going to have something uh, this weekend in the newspaper. Yeah, we do. John Russell, our healthcare reporter, happened by the Noblesville Hospital when they were taking down the emergency room signs. He's got a story about what happened with those micro hospitals, why maybe they haven't worked, at least here in central Indiana, but some information about the fact that they are looking to expand those in other places. All right, a lot going on on I-65, uh, in particular in Boone County. There's the massive tech park, a couple of Eli Lilly and company manufacturing operations to go in there, and a new exit that's been talked about for a while going to become a reality off I-65 in Boone County. Yeah, there, you know, there's so much going on in Boone County right now. There was already a lot of talk about the need for another exit because of all the industrial facilities going in there. But this LEAP Innovation District that is being planned just makes a, that exit more important. And the state's really gearing up to get started on that. And that includes some land acquisition and some other things. Mickey Shuey has that story. So more construction on I-65. Who would think that? Uh, it seems like it never ends, but much needed. I know a lot going on in Boone County. Leslie Wyden-Benner, as always, thanks for the update. A lot going on in uh, the IBJ this weekend. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, you too, Gary. All right.
A stunning shakeup in college sports continues as two of the best-known brands, UCLA and the University of Southern California, will be leaving the Pac-12 to join the Big Ten in 2024. What does the change mean for student-athletes, fans, and the future of college sports? Inside Indiana Business sports contributor Bill Benner, as well as Mike DeCourcy, the senior writer for the Sporting News, and Jake Query, co-host of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan in Indianapolis, join Gary for a special Insiders panel. To kind of tee this up, and Mike, I'll start with you. Just a quick reaction when you heard the news that, uh, you know, expansion maybe is not that surprising, but to see USC and UCLA come to the Big Ten, what were you thinking? I, I have to admit I was shocked that afternoon uh, when, when that story broke. I was not expecting it. I felt better because uh, some of the guys who covered college football acknowledged that they were shocked too, and this is really a football-first deal. That is the biggest component of this College basketball, my specialty, obviously important, but football drives the bus. Yeah. Get off my lawn. I still wish the Big Ten was the Big Ten. Uh, so, you know, I, my biggest concern is um, just what it means for the overall all landscape of college sports. And, you know, we had Mike on a few weeks ago about talk, name, image, likeness. Where is it all going? Well, I kind of know where it's all going. Right. Follow the money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. My first thought was initially, like like everybody here said, like, holy cow, this kind of came out of nowhere. Then my second thought was, surely, geographically speaking, this has to mean that more is coming. And that remains to be seen. I guess my third thought, too, was then finally, after 50 plus years, Bill Benner's dream of seeing Indiana and the Rose Bowl is going to come true, right? That's a cheap shot. I knew that was coming. In all honesty, though, I mean, you know, the scheduling remains to be seen, but it is neat to think of the schools from here being able to go play out west. What those schools think about coming and playing in, you know, at Rutgers, I I don't know about that. Right. Uh, Okay. Additional teams. We'll see how that plays out. The team that everybody's, the school that everyone's looking at, is Notre Dame and where Notre Dame goes. Does Notre Dame go to the Big Ten? Do they go to another conference? Or do I, they- think, I think inevitably they do because I think that they will find greater resources being part of that larger consortium than they can generate on their yeah. own with NBC yeah. as it is now. They generate a lot of money, obviously, Mike, in the NBC contract. But when you look at the Big Ten network and maybe $100 million plus yeah, I mean, the, the numbers I've seen for the NBC contract are not overwhelming based on what the other conferences are getting, based, especially based on what the SEC will get now on its new deal and then what the Big Ten is expected to get. So I think, in a sense, if you look over a decade, Notre Dame is looking at basically a billion-dollar decision. <laughs> is independence worth that much? I've never really understood their attachment to it as it is. Uh, now, with that big pile of money on there, I don't, I don't know why they would stay. I think one of the things that's interesting about Notre Dame, and Notre Dame is a huge national brand. I mean, we know this. I'm not, but Notre Dame, more than probably any other athletic program, is steeped and in, in rooted in tradition. And the tradition for Notre Dame of their schedule and the rivalries they have and the ability to be independent. I agree the Big Ten seemingly would be the school that waits out Notre Dame. But the question then becomes how long does Notre Dame wait it out, or does, do they feel? compelled that they need to join a conference. I, you know, I agree that I think ultimately they're probably going to have to do so. But Mike, I don't think it's necessarily going to be imminent that Notre Dame joins somewhere. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I've said that it, this decision may be as quick as getting everybody in a conference room. Are we good? We like it the way we are? Mm-hmm. Yes, no. Then it could be that fast, but it's a lot of money to turn down. And mm-hmm. uh, with everybody so hungry for finances in college sports, it would be amazing if they turn it down.
Yeah, the two titans seem to be, you know, the Big Ten and the, the SEC right now. What's, Jake, I know you follow Clemson, you're a Clemson fan. I am. Uh, but, you know, what's next? I mean, I can't see necessarily the SEC standing pat here while the Big Ten is, you know, yeah. gaining their market share uh, from a TV standpoint. You know, it kind of feels like, Gary, that the Big 12 all of a sudden is the one that's become kind of the cog in this wheel because the ACC has a television contract that's hard for them to kind of break away from and join alliances, if you will. And it seemed to be almost inevitable that Washington, Oregon, maybe the two Arizonas joined UCLA and USC and you had kind of this merger of the Pac-12 Big 10. But that was, you know, that's old news. That was two weeks ago. Right. Now the Big 12 suddenly is kind of joining the party and passing out invitations behind everybody's back. And now, all of a sudden, some of those schools may join the Big 12. So I think that there's an additional curveball to this that kind of delays things even longer to the point where maybe the carousels have slowed down a little bit for right now. Hmm. Scheduling, uh, as you get these conferences bigger and bigger, do, do rivalries fall by, by the wayside? What, what most of the leagues are doing is protecting rivalries. Uh, I, I suspect that... Indiana, Purdue will be protected as a football rivalry. They'll make sure they play that every year. They'll, Ohio State and Michigan, they've protected for years by keeping mm -hmm. them in the same division when competitively it would have made sense to split them and have them potentially meet in the conference championship game. So the key rivalries will be, and I think associated rivalries, like for Michigan, okay, they got to have Ohio State, but they'll also have Michigan State and then one yeah. more. Yeah, but you used to say Texas had to have Texas A&M, <laughs> and, that, and that's, that's not but happening still partners we're yeah. talking about yeah. so they'll yeah. they'll work that part out and yeah. then the rest yeah. of it there may be times when you don't see particular teams play one another within a conference for multiple years at a time you mentioned mike yes you know, driven by football and basketball certainly in there as well the two uh, money makers but what about the olympic sports and the other sports how do, how are they impacted uh it, by, by well this and that's expansion? that's another of my big concerns the Rutgers wrestling team are they going to go are they going to go to los angeles and, and wrestle ucla mm -hmm. or vice versa uh the non the non-revenue sports uh, <laughs> they are mm -hmm. non-revenue sports mm -hmm. but uh talking about the student athlete experience the quality and the quantitativeness of the student athlete experience I hope it's not being sacrificed at the altar of uh, money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Bill in that regard, though. It's really difficult to travel in the fall, for example, and go through commercial airports and not see a big group of kids with backpacks on. And you look at it and you say, oh, that, there's the Maryland lacrosse team. Mm -hmm. You know, there's look, look, football and basketball are traveling privately and chartering. Everybody else is flying on Southwest Airlines and getting delayed and they've got classes mm -hmm. to get to. And I mean, it, it, there are a lot of irons in that fire and that to me is going to be the real the real trick here is is figuring out the travel of those teams and hoping to bill's point that universities don't say you know what that travel is logistically and financially not worth the effort go ahead mike well i was going to say that the one thing that you have to remember though is all that money means those sports will remain yeah, correct yeah they'll That's continue true. i mean they're funding it right yeah you can't yeah. say now well we can't have that team because we don't have enough um, that, there's no way you can make that argument but the thing that i, I think is getting lost in this conversation uh not just here but everywhere is this all this money does it become part of a professional operation mm. that's the next frontier for those who advocate for athletes uh, mm. the ones who brought us name image and likeness now want the student athletes to be student athlete employees uh, they want them to be paid by the schools right now they're, all, they're getting paid but by, by outside interests 
do they do they now become salaried employees? Hmm. And that's when the game really yeah. changes well, for everybody. And I think the student aspect of student athlete, to an extent, let's let's go to the elephant in the room here, can be compromised when you're talking about, to Bill's point, a wrestler from Rutgers that has to fly to Los Angeles for a wrestling meet, fly back to Rutgers just to get ready to then have to go down and fly to Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> all while he's got a term paper due because he's a student athlete. If you say that you can't have an NCAA tournament football playoff during winter break, mind you, because it takes kids away from class, then how do you justify sending your rugby team from New Jersey to L.A. and back in the span of three days? Yeah. Well, you bring up a good point. Where does this all go? Uh, with the conference expansions, with name, image, likeness, all those kind of things, the professional aspect of things. Where do you see, Mike, this ending up, uh, you know, five years, 10 years down the road? Yeah, you know, I think that's the big concern for a lot of schools is whether they professionalize, uh, mm -hmm. you know, have the, the athletes organize in unions. Uh, we, I, I know that there have been uh, government agencies that have been advancing that. There was a bill in the California legislature. It hasn't gone anywhere, uh, but, it's, but it, was, it was crafted uh, that to, to try to force the California schools to pay their athletes as employees. Mm -hmm. And that would change everything. And then this money difference between the SEC Big Ten and everybody else, right now it really doesn't mean that much. It just makes things easier at those schools. But if they become professional, then at that point, it affects the competition. It affects whether Clemson can get enough good football players to win in the college football playoff. You know, I'll bring it home. What happens to Butler? What happens to the mid-majors? Uh, what happens to the, uh, uh, the rest of the uh, Division One? I? I think Division Two, II, Division Three. Uh, I think they will continue to exist as they are. But I do wonder how that big tent of, of Division One, which encompasses so many schools with so many different missions and so many differentials yeah. in the size of their scope of their athletic programs, how do they all coexist? Yeah, yeah, and you follow basketball. What about the what about March Madness, the NCAA tournament? How is that impact? There is a concern about that, but remember, everything we've seen happen to this point has been about more money. I got to get more money. I I can get more money. I have to take it. That that money that's a billion dollars a year until I believe 2032. So we're basically looking at it more than a decade out, where that money is guaranteed to come to the schools. Do they really think that they can create an, a, an enterprise that will be that lucrative? The NCAA tournament, if you compare it to the rest of its sport, I think the only rival in terms of outsized popularity would be your specialty, the Indy 500. Mm, right. uh, it, that, it, the NCAA tournament is here. College basketball is probably here. It's a very popular sport, but it's not nearly as popular as the yeah. tournament. So they have to protect that because that's where the money is. But Mike, I also worry about as, this, as the conferences become national and the Big Ten becomes national as opposed to esoterically regional, what does that mean for the conference championships that are so great and so viable to the economy of Indianapolis? The Big Ten basketball championships, the Big Ten football championships, I'm begging the Big Ten. LA's wonderful. It's beautiful. Love Los Angeles. Guess what? Easy peasy right here in Indianapolis. Yeah. Keep it right here. You can bring whoever you want to the party. I love that. We're going to end on that note because that's All a right. good one. Jake Query, Bill Benner, Mike DeCourcy. Great conversation. Thanks that's for joining great. us. Thanks, that wraps up this week's Inside Indiana Business television podcast. Remember, you can find all of this week's TV segments as well as the top business news from throughout the state at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our platform of e-newsletters. This is Alex Brown for Inside Indiana Business.